Christina Borgeson. My guest today describes himself as a concerned citizen who has been hunting the oligarchy and deep state since 2004. You've probably seen Dr. Patrick Byrne on TV as he's been in the media lately talking about evidence showing that recent presidential elections were rigged. Needless to say, he's been getting pushback. So who is he and why would the mainstream media give him airtime? Dr. Byrne was educated in Ivy League universities. He has a master's in ethics and doctorate in philosophy. And he went on to become a very successful businessman who knows a thing or two about the internet. He's the former CEO of Overstock.com and founder of Worldstock, a socially responsible internet store for products handcrafted by artisans from developing nations and rural areas of the US. But Dr. Byrne is even more than all that. In 2005, he began a campaign against corruption in capital markets through securities manipulation. Wall Street analysts and the press pushed back then, prompting Dr. Byrne to continue his campaign by setting up a website called deepcapture.com. That's where you'll find his article titled Election 2020 Was Rigged, The Evidence. Welcome, Dr. Byrne. Thank you, Christina. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So, now I know, may I ask you a question? I know that this is Progressive Radio Network, but is our picture being broadcast as well? It will be on the social media platforms. Okay. I should have brushed my hair more. Sorry. You, <laughs> you look fine. So listen, let's start at the very beginning, okay? Please. Uh, what prompted you to get involved in this? In this referring to just this election issue? Well, this, the I, wanted, I wanted to start with that, but I have to, I'm, I'm just going to tell you off the bat, you're a very interesting person to me. I get that a lot. You know, <laughs> interesting, interesting, it would scare well, me. Well, it, you know why I say that before we get into all this? I say that because of my own, my own background. Um, I was reared in Haiti. Oh, really? member of the morally repugnant elite. And uh, so I know all about the shenanigans of the powerful from an up close and very personal view. And um, it, it takes a lot of, I mean, it's almost, I guess somebody would say noblesse oblige in your case, you know, because you don't have to do this. And I think that noblesse oblige is a very uh, underappreciated thing, uh, particularly in these times, you know? Well, I, I appreciate that. It's rare. I don't think I've ever met a journalist who, who knew what oble uh, noblesse oblige was, let alone used it correctly. <laughs> so, yeah, I hate to say it. I guess it's, I don't, well, for one thing, since you bring it up, do you really want me to address? address? Yes, yes. It may be, I'm sure it looks, and it's perfectly appropriate for, to think that I, uh, to think that of me. I mean, I can see why. I guess I think of my background as a little bit more complicated. I come from a family that actually we started off as, say, lower middle class, lower middle class, working class Irish. Over the first 20 years of my life, my family had the, or lived the Horatio Alger dream. So I sort of growing up, I got to see society from a lot of different levels. Uh, 
I don't really think of it in such class terms, though. I do think I'm a citizen. I think citizens have obligations. Um, and what you're going to, what you're, well, so uh, uh, it's funny. When I took on Wall Street, people used to, in 05 to 08, I got in this very nasty fight with Wall Street. And I knew the savings of America were being looted. I knew they were destroying companies. I knew they were going to melt it. We were going to have a systemic crisis because of it which Greenspan, everyone forgets that in, in 08, he confirmed exactly what I'd been saying. And lastly, that the SEC was either asleep at the switch or in bed with Wall Street. And everybody thought I was crazy back then. And they would ask me, why are you getting in the fight? And I guess I said, well, if I walked past an alleyway and there was some little old lady getting mugged, you wouldn't just turn your eyes and do it. I and mean, who wouldn't go, could do, either you at least are calling the police, you're going down and getting in someone's grill or something. I don't see these situations as fundamentally any different just because I'm, I, you're, we're removed from it through well, mechanisms. I agree. I agree. But I will tell you this, okay, um, as a whistleblower myself, which is why I even started this show, right? Um, I had the same, I had, I have the same instinct, which has gotten me into a lot of trouble. I mean, I went to the, uh, school you know columbia school of journalism i was educated in the, the in the private institutions i having been reared in haiti under papa doc i was thrilled to be part of the freest press in the world until i realized i was not you know and it, it was such a shock to me and it was such a shock to me that my colleagues would keep their jobs would 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 lie. I mean, your responsibility as a journalist is to tell the truth and to do the reporting, not just to report an official narrative that might not be true. Of course. And, and it was I, such a shock. It, it is a shock, isn't it? And, you know, it's a shock. I learned about it from different ways. One, I lived in China, 83, 84, and I experienced things there. And when I came home, I was like so what? shocked. Well, like I just saw the party line worked and how party line media worked. But when I came home to the U.S., and I spent, uh, I was shocked that I had ever experienced our media as independent and neutral and unbiased. You know, people in, inquisitively seeking the truth. And then there was a period like everyone. I read a lot of Chomsky. Do you know Chomsky? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, there was a period through the '80s. I read I, thousands of pages, probably. Probably by ninety, probably by nineteen ninety, I'd read sort of all of his political work practically up until that point. I sort of at some point you you've read enough, um, but I, I, that those experiences left me with a skepticism about the press. But it was really when I got crosswise with Wall Street, you know, I came across some really dirty business on Wall Street. Talk about that. Talk about that uh, for a minute. It gets very technical. It's up on deep capture, but the settlement system, the savings of Americans have been, well, I'll put it this way. Three years ago, a bunch of pension funds filed a suit against Wall Street. That's, that's probably the first trillion dollar lawsuit in American history because they have figured out that the pension funds had been looted by Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and a few of the big guys in a, in a very deep way that had, they had not understood. That thing they're talking about, which is the same thing that Alan Greenspan referred to in 08 as the thing that really was the root cause of the crisis, is the thing I figured about out in 05. Well, in 05, that was short selling, though, right? 
Well, short selling is just it's a short selling is a phrase used. It's it's naked short selling, which is something different. It's the, it's as different as sex is from sexual harassment. You know, they're two different things, but they still. But really, so the naked short selling is sex. Well, the naked as short selling is the just... sexual harassment. It's the oh, it's illegal. <laughs> if someone were out there complaining about sexual harassment and people responded, "Oh, this person just doesn't like sex." You'd say they're kind of confused. Sexual harassment isn't a type of sex. Naked short selling is not really a type of short selling. A sea lion is not a type of lion. Right, so right. It's, it's other activity. And even that was just a window into the underlying issue, which is the settlement system. And the settlement system of, of American capital markets has huge holes in it. And Goldman and others had found ways to basically loot, open up a poppycock, I think it's called on the on the bottom of the tank of the savings of America and drain. It was so I, I, what I discovered, though, and it all turned out to be true. Alan, everybody by 08, everyone had gotten that I'd been right. There were vindication stories. And then the cone of silence came over me. But what was interesting for those three years, I thought the world worked like it did for Julia Roberts in uh, Pelican Brief. She clears <laughs> yeah. up the world, she writes it up, puts the brief, and the Washington Post swoops in, the DOJ swoops in, and they whisk her up. Well, reality is nothing like that. In reality, when you figure out the big, the big, something like that, all the forces of power and authority reveal themselves and go to work. So I lived this really crazy three-year cover-up where I had the facts, I had the data, I had economists, I had whistleblowers to prove that there was this enormous crime going on on Wall Street. And the, the, the five or six journalists who really set the guardrails for discourse on Wall Street, who are all in the pocket, I don't know why or how, or I don't mean that literally for pay, but I suspect some of them, they just set this discourse. I mean, they used to run, when I came out and said the SEC is inappropriately inappropriately close to Wall Street and actually seems to be protecting Wall Street at the to uh, to the injury of America. They used to run photos of me in the New York Post with UFOs coming out of my head because that was a crazy conspiracy theory to say what the the new, the SEC is too close to Wall. You know, it's it's funny. There there there's a kind of it's it's a common term in economics, something called capture, regulatory capture. So among economists, that's a very one well-known phenomenon, but I would have to deal with these journalists. And at first I just thought they were kind of dumb, and but they had good educations. And then I just realized if they're not on the take, they should be. Ultimately, many financial journalists are really speaking the book of certain hedge funds that are really their primary sources and they get you those hedge funds use them. So it's kind of a Marxist interpretation, actually. But anyway, my, my understanding of power in the media changed over those years. And I realized Chomsky had been at least directionally correct. Well, <clears throat> I will add to your bank experience. Uh, I, um, a few years ago, I had worked up this proposal called Bank Whistleblowers. And it featured uh, Richard Bowen of Citigroup, who is a well-known bank whistleblower. Gary Aguirre, who was oh. an SEC, SEC whistleblower. Well. Yeah, he's okay. Good. He's a great oh, guy. Oh, you are? Okay, so you know he's, Gary. He's, he should be an American hero. For what oh, he, he is an American hero, except, you know. There should be a statue um, of him somewhere, I mean. Exactly. Gary. If they, listened, if they had listened to him, 08 would not have happened. Well, 
yeah, Bill Black, I had him also. And I had Michael Winston, who uh, blew the whistle on Countrywide. This was all mm -hmm. about the subprime in 2008, right? Right. So I, I was so thrilled to have all these guys. And nobody at the networks would touch it. I was, I was pitching it everywhere. And I finally went to Vice, which Vice is considered, you know, it's edgy, it's cool, it's, you know, right. it'll do what the other networks won't do, whatever. And so right. we went to Vice. Vice loved it. They loved it. Okay. And we had these meetings. They said, well, can we do this? Can we do it? Yes, yes, yes. Months later. And then all of a sudden, they said, okay, we're going to go talk to the money people about the budget and so on. And next thing you know, silencio. Oh. Silencio, nada. And I was like, well, this is weird. I mean, we, they just loved us so much. We've been there a million times, whatever. And finally, I was so, the one thing that thrilled me was for the first time in my career as a journalist, somebody from the outlet, they came back and they said, the higher up said, this is too hot to handle. And, yeah, absolutely not. If it's it, Gary Aguirre, especially. Well, what he knows cannot be what he knows. They cannot let the public understand. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is, is that, well, I mean, you're looking at I think I'm the only journalist in the United States, the only American journalist who has been hired and blackballed three times by the networks because I was a network producer. That's you know? high praise. That's high praise, <laughs> Christina. That's high praise. <laughs> so, and every time it happened to me, the first, the first two times um, was while I was covering the crash of TWA Flight 800. And, Ooh. Ooh, and you some sensitivities there. Oh, I, I'll send you. I'll send you the documentary that took me 17 years to do on that one. Are you? It took me camp? 17 years. Are you, of the camp, are you of the camp that says it was not Libya, it was Iranian? No, no, no. That, TWA Flight 800 is, is the uh, airline. You're talking, about, no, you're, you're talking about Lockerbie, right? You're right. You're right. The TWA 800 is the one that took off from Long Island and went? Yes, it, exactly. Sorry. And that had some sensitivities, too, because, as you know, the minute it crashed, the CIA, the FBI... Uh, the Pentagon, everybody was there. The Navy, everybody was there. And that was not for no reason, as I discovered when I lost my uh, my fabulous producing gig at CBS as a result of that. Was there, but, ever, was there ever any truth to the story that there were, there were eyewitnesses who claimed that there was a missile involved? Yeah. Uh, look, I'm going to send you my, my documentary. You'll okay. see. You'll see. Because it, it, it's five whistleblowers. Uh, it's like half a dozen whistleblowers who finally came forward to talk about how their investigation was undermined. And in our film, we brought them all together to compare notes for the first time because it was a highly compartmentalized um, uh, investigation for a reason. And you'll see, I'll send it to you. But, um, but the thing is this, you with this election 2020 being rigged. You, you know, that's a third rail issue I'm for, for, 
you know, the power, as you call the oligarchy and the deep state, that's a third rail issue in those quarters. And so I was very surprised because somebody like you, you don't have to do this, you know? And that's why I was impressed by the fact that you actually, you, you jumped in, you know, hands, feet, arms, legs, everything to do this. And that's, you know, Thank you. But I wasn't surprised after I saw the bank stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh. To read back a couple on deep capture about a year ago, I came out and I started coming out uh, and, and writing some things about some stuff I'd been involved with. So, well, thank you for noticing. It's, you know, it's kind of funny. I, it's, it's, it's kind of, we, we may, my feelings about the left over the years. So I did a PhD in philosophy and I was sick in my twenties. I had cancer a few times and I was kind of an invalid on and off for most of my twenties. Wow. So, so knock on wood. I, and, uh, <laughs> I, and I came to the conclusion when I really settled my political convictions, they are that the left is correct. It's almost invariably correct about what's wrong with the world. They're, they're generally, not always, but generally incorrect, I believe, about what how to fix the problems, but they are correct about the problems and in a way that the right does not see. So, uh, so there's a lot of common cause between us. And I want to be clear, I did not vote for Mr. Trump, did, have never voted Republican in my life for a president. I've never voted Democrat either. I'm a small L libertarian. My voting mechanism, I might as well describe because it's probably... I, of interest. I'm normally not public about it, but I've, is in 1988, I stood in the voting booth and I couldn't get myself to pull the lever for either side. And I decided on an algorithm. And that is from then on, I go down the, the and I vote for every libertarian because violence is immoral and the state is organized violence. Then for every woman and then anything left over, I look at the job. If it has to do with money or crime, I vote Republican. If it has to do with social welfare, I vote Democrat. And that way, Probably I don't very have to intelligent. Uh, I, I thought of that. <laughs> that's how I've always voted. That's and that way I can vote in 90 seconds and I never have to listen to these guys. And that's probably anyway. So that's where I come from. And I'm coming at this election, not from some diehard Trump supporter. But if we uh, if we this was hopelessly they, they really went for broke here. This is the oligarchy going for broke. And it's obvious and the techniques we're seeing in such are reinforcing. Anyway, uh, it's it's uh, this wasn't even close. This wasn't even close. So that that's why I did it. it it's as natural to, as breathing. I can't. I, I see this as if if this stands, there will never be a free election again in our country, probably. Well, what what is it that first that first made you think? You know, this is not kosher. Well, actually, I've been on this since August. And what? And by the way, this inures to the benefit of both Democrats and Republicans. There are Republicans who have made. So this really started for me. This phase started in August. The and here's why. Let me go back two years. In 2018, there was an election in Dallas that had irregularities, and the state government of Texas ordered a special governor's panel to look into it. And the cybersecurity group they hired 
it was a group of people at a very elite group of military intelligence, federal law enforcement type people, former who had this company and they studied it for two years. And what they discovered is that there is what they discovered is that there's about a dozen ways you can you can hack an election and hack used in the most general sense, both including keyboard hacks and cheat in the more general sense, cheating. And uh, so Do you I know what those dozen ways are. Yes. Well, I mean, if you even look at these Dominion machines, they are physically almost designed to be vulnerable. They've been they have uh, ports on them that any and some kind of R232 port. Anyone who accesses has root level access to the system. They have chip slots that should be glued over inside, but because they're not, if someone can physically access the machine for a few seconds and drop a chip in there, they can download something, unload. They have, in addition, a, and there's an article on this on ZDNet, I think, a, a hacker's kind of place, uh, called about a, a type of software of malware that has been installed on them called QSnatch, or that has infected them. And QSnatch steals people's credentials. And it's widely, there are, there are hacker journals who have reported from this summer, they were saying this is widely infecting the Dominion machines. Well, that means any, anyone who logs on with their administrator credentials or any credentials from a precinct, your, your credentials get snatched. They say there are 66,000 machines in the US that have this, Dominion machines. Their credentials get snatched and somebody back in the Ukraine or China can then log on to that precinct machine and take it over and move votes around. So anyone who's telling you this, this stuff is secure. I'm, I've been working since August with various hackers and a couple cybersecurity, very professional groups and ethical hackers. And now we rate it. They rate, and these are professional hackers. I'm a, you know, I, and, uh, uh, I barely know which end of the, to plug into the toaster, but they, uh, I mean, yeah, I built, no, that's better. I did build, I will say. I don't no, believe that. <laughs> I, I built a $2 billion tech company. So, right. So anyway, and I can tell you that these are on a scale of one to 10 in terms of their hackability. There are two, maybe a one. This is child's play to defeat these systems. It's almost. Wow. Yeah. And well, group, I, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no go ahead. No, I, I, I just wanted to say, I remember um, back before the Bush election, they were talking about those Debolt machines that somebody actually was on the, went on the radio with a hacker. I, I remember that. I, it was an arresting moment in the, on the radio. And the guy hacked the machine in less than a minute. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's still the same. It's still the same. Whether you have physical access or not, these are all hackable. And you can't assume that it's just going to benefit the Democrats or the Republicans. Deals are getting made. I mean, it's the DNA of our republic that the will of the, the atomic concept that I think unites us all, wherever we are on the spectrum, is consent of the governed. That's the one thing when you liberalism is that you know the atomic concept is consent of the governed, philosophical liberalism. And if you have corrupt voting mechanisms, that's your, you know, you're, you're, you're polluting the, the drinking water of a village or something. It's for, in a democracy, oh. the first thing, the first institution that has to be correct and rigorous is the election systems. 
and these are far from it. So, okay, so you, it started in August for you. Yes. And, you, and so what did you do? You, you got in touch with these hackers or you just said, I, you read this article about how easily hacked these machines were and then what did you do? Well, I got down, I started working with them. I started funding a group of different investigators and people to examine. And truth is we prepared or they prepared a, a presentation for the Department of Home and Security. Oddly enough, CISA, C-I-S-A, which is the infrastructure group within there that is supposed to be protecting our computer infrastructure, they, uh, they were really adverse, uh, averse to, to being briefed on it. The Department of Homeland Security was briefed, but the part of, within the government whose very function is to guarantee our, the, ele the election technology would not attend the briefing, even though higher ups were pushing them to. So, and these are Republicans, I'm telling you. So there's Republicans and Democrats. This is, you know, here's an interesting thing. The, the, when Bernie stepped down in 2016, I understand more of his supporters went to Trump than went to Hillary. And I'm a friend with, I'm friends with a certain well-known movie actress, and she was one of them. And I guess you can divide the world. You know, there are people who see it left, right, but there are also people who see it elites versus the people. And, and if you look at it from that perspective, you can see why Bernie and Trump both know something. There's something that they both know that the mainstream does not get yet, that the mainstream and the mainstream is trying to pound, is trying to keep this illusion over people's head. But there is something that both Bernie and, and Trump know. And that is the, the elites have ripped off the people. Now they probably they clearly differ on what you do about it and all kinds of stuff, but that they understand this is it's turned into a system of exploitation and oppression. And there, and so again, I didn't vote for Bernie, did not vote for Trump. I vote straight. I'm a small L libertarian, but there is that shared knowledge that wherever you come from on the spectrum, you have to be against our election systems being so compromised, unless you're just in favor of elite rule. I mean. This is the thing that I find terrifying at this point, okay? Given the, my entire experience over a number of major investigative stories, because I'm, I'm an investigative reporter, um, is the complete corruption that exists to protect these these very powerful interests. And meanwhile, and this is where the press, I mean, the press is, th this, I find the American population the most heavily propagandized population in, in the world. I mean, they really think that this is a, a free country. You know, they really feel like, yes, okay, so there's a little stealing over here and a steal. To me, these aren't even left, right, liberal. These, these are fundamental issues. Of, I, I don't care if you're at the on the left or the right. Everybody wants the same thing. You know, everybody wants honesty, a decent education. I mean, okay, you know, every population has its uh, 5% or whatever percent of, of psychopaths or whatever. But, you know, we all know what the basic rules should be, you know. Uh, Yes. And and yet and yet people I find people 
and you know, even in my own tribe is when I first ran into it among journalists, this, this corruption through silence, okay? If you're not gonna directly contribute by just reporting the official narrative with no questions or with no fact checking, because you know you know what you're going to find and if you report it you're going to lose that source and if you lose that source you lose your value to the network or to the outlet that's the problem that they have they're in a vise and yet they they prefer to they prefer to go corrupt and Christine, i just i you're, I we're separated at birth here you're reading my email this is you that's exactly how uh how i came to perceive things too and is it their desire to be activists? Is it their desire that they're comfortable? They reach the point where they have good jobs and they don't want to make waves? You tell me. I had a very interesting conversation once um, with Robert Perry, a, a, a very, um, a very, um, wait a second, what is, a very well-respected sort of to the left, um, reporter. He was a mainstream reporter. He he blew the whistle on um, in for Newsweek. I think it what, what was it Iran Contra. He got into trouble for his reporting on Iran Contra or something. Very good guy, right? And I was talking to him about what happened to Gary Webb. I don't know if you know who Gary Webb was. Was he a journalist? Yeah, he was a journalist. He committed. He ended up committing suicide because. Um, he had exposed uh, CIA connections to the crack cocaine epidemic in- He committed um, suicide in a motel in West Virginia or something, right? Something. Well, no, he, I, I don't know where he committed suicide. No, know. at home, I think at home in California, he'd lost his wife and everything. Why? Because he had, he had done this amazing story called Dark Alliance. And that's when the internet was brand new. And he had all this documentation on the internet and so on. And he worked for the San Jose Mercury News, and okay. um, he exposed contra connection. Yeah, yeah, he exposed CIA connection between the crack cocaine explosion and and drug smuggling uh, that was helped along, uh, you know, by the government for to to help finance Iran Contra. Okay, um, as a matter of fact, I, <laughs> one of my colleagues, Mike Levine, I'll never forget when he showed me a a piece of paper, a, a page from Oliver North's diary that said, pick up coca paste, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway. You think he, he'd at least be smart enough to say, you know, bananas or something. Yeah, or whatever. No. I mean, so anyway, uh, Gary puts this out. It's, it's huge. The government's hair goes on fire. Washington Post, New York Times are like, who the hell is this guy? And they start to bash him and bash him and bash him until finally his editor, his editor backed off and stopped supporting Gary. And Gary was blackballed. And this was a guy who lived to do the work that he did. And he ended up killing himself. Mm. So later on, I talked to Bob Perry, this reporter, and I said, I'm so shocked at his editor that he did that, that he didn't. All the documentation. Michael was right there. Uh, all the documentation for for Michael Levine that Michael Levine also had. Michael Levine is this um, DEA agent who was the one who had the the page that said "pick up the coca page." 
that Michael had that 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 um, that uh, Greg had, Gary had Gary had you know still his 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 editor backed off so anyway um, I said to Perry how could his editor do that I mean he really he really just he sparked his demise the demise of this great journalist and you know what he said to me what? he said to me well you know you got to kind of forgive him because he was uh ill at the time and he needed his uh he needed his medical insurance and that may have been the reason and i don't know i I felt like a deer in the headlights in the sense because I feel compassion for the guy because if that's the situation, that's the situation and you have a family to support. But by the same token, if you sign up to be a journalist, which is, it's a huge privilege. It's a huge public service. It is. It's, a, it's sacred. It's sacred. It, it really is. But I get crosswise with journalists. The ones I get crosswise are the ones who seem to me like, that's why I get a little chippy sometimes with journalists. It's like, I want to shake them and say, did you really, you're just being another brick in the wall. Here's these facts. Why don't you follow them? And some of them just choose to be just another brick in the wall. And why do you become a journalist? Do you know what my question is? What? I, some of them, I just have the urge to say, does your mother know you're doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a mother. You might, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it how is. can you, how can you do that? I mean, look at the, okay. So and when you do it, you're doing something to millions of people. You're letting down millions of people. You wouldn't let them down if they were in their, in your living room. You probably shouldn't let them down if they're around the country. And you I'm are afraid. literally changing their lives. Especially if you, especially if you are a journalist who finally has, has got it has a story and the truth about something that is so huge, that has such huge implications, okay? For you to then back away from it because you wanna hold on to your health insurance or, I, I, I get it, it's, it's hard to be a whistleblower. It's, it's hell, it's hell, you know? I mean, It's I, weird. Can I tell you, when I finally went forward a year ago and spoke about my involvement in the Maria Butina matters, uh, were you aware when I did that last year? No, I wasn't. But tell, tell my audience who... Maria I went Butina. on television and Maria Butina was this Russian spy, allegedly, putatively, and I had been involved in some matters concerning her. And I gave up my CEO job. I built Oversock.com, started and built it, and was the CEO for 20 years. And I came forward knowing that it would probably cost me my job because it would be so controversial. Public company CEO can't come out and say what I was going to say. If you read, even go back a couple stories on Deep Capture, you'll see that I have written a lot about that. But I was involved. Remember that striking redhead that was put in prison for 18 months? Yep. Uh, well, I was involved in those matters and I knew it from the inside and they, uh, I, uh, what did you know? 
that's a whole other story. I don't want to mix it with this election stuff. Okay. If you want to, you can go on Deep Capture, read those stories, and have me back, and I'll talk about that. Okay. But I'm heavily involved in both the Russian investigation and the Clinton investigation, and I've put up. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get iced. I'm obviously gonna to have to go live on a nuclear submarine or something. But I have put up on Deep Capture my involvement in those two issues. So if you go to Deep Capture, you'll see the whole truth about Maria Butina and some things regarding the Clinton investigation. Oh, I'm very um, interested in that coming from Haiti because a lot of the the earthquake money. Oh my God, I've never met. I've ne if all you have to do is say to someone who comes from Haiti is bring up the name Clinton and yeah. they can see anybody they the Clintons laid themselves bare on what they did in Haiti it's obscene it's yeah. obscene they, they're, they were a crime machine the left they can do much better than that this may really create an opportunity what's going to happen one of two things going to happen either this this is a coup what's going on now and I'm sure many most of your listeners are not people who voted for Trump and I'm not someone who voted for Trump that's not the issue. Actually, you'd be surprised, and I'll tell you why. Tell me. Because I don't, and my audience knows this, I don't care what wing the truth flies on. I, I don't care about left or right. Mm -hmm. I just care about what's true. And, you know, it's interesting because I do have, you know, I have a lot of friends on both sides. And my left my left wing friends keep telling me, oh my God, you know, you're, you're, why are you supporting Trump? I said, I'm not supporting Trump. I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to get, I, yes. And, and our election process, ha, I mean, it's been dirty and rigged for a long time. Good for so, you. So if finally so people are stepping forward and doing the work and presenting the evidence, why shouldn't I present that? Of course, of course. You know, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt said, great minds speak of ideas, average minds speak of events, weak minds speak of people. And it seems to me that for the last four years, this country has just spoken about Donald Trump. We have to get off this. People, he, he's like yeah. living rent free in the brains of the left and the right. He's just living rent free there. Come on, we have to have. There are better conversations to have. Oh, and he's so, driven the left nuts. I mean, I mean, they're yeah, and they you know, get, they get they're so angry, and it's and you can't be that way when you're talking about when you're talking about what's what. Okay, right. I mean. It's it's not a choice, really. If you look at if you look at Biden and Trump, if you really look at the two of them, both of them should be going through the courts for for one thing or another. So the choice that you're given already, these these people have gone through a process that creates two untenable choices already. It seems like. Well, certainly stylistically, Mr. Trump is not is not my is style. But, you know, you get got to get past the style. Yeah, I agree. I and, I and he's done some things. I'm kind of surprised that the left hasn't noticed on some things like I remember a generation ago, the the Seattle protests against the World Trade Organization and the people questioning really is completely free trade it may, it may have all kinds of pernicious effects. We're not we're not understanding yet. And at the time, I got to confess, I wasn't, I didn't see the logic in their arguments. Well, I came over the last, what was that, 23 years ago or something. 
Well, uh, the, when were those Seattle protests? 97, 98? 90, yeah, 90. Well, I'm, yeah. I came to see. Mid 90s somewhere, yeah. I came to see there turned out to be a lot of truth in what they said. And they, the, the, what we did with NAFTA and with the World Trade Organization and GATS, it hollowed out America. And it, yes, it totally did. hurt the working class. It totally hurt, it really hurt working and low income people whose jobs were shipped to, you know, place where you could pay people in Haiti. And, pay yeah, people in Haiti. <laughs> and they turned out to be right about a bunch of things. And no, so you're Trump absolutely right would have recognized that Trump is the first politician to come along in 20 years that sort of raised those issues again. And so there are there is some common cause to be made if you can see past the stylistic problems, which are, of course, but you know what, someone pointed out to me once I was I was saying something about another politician in town. This was an economist who was close to that politician. And he said, you know, and he said, Patrick, you you got to understand all these people or what any normal person, and it was, I was actually talking about Hillary Clinton at the time, and this was a decade ago. And the fellow said, Patrick, who was defending Hillary to me, said, you know, you gotta understand all these people who do that are kind of wacky, they're megalomaniac, they're, they're, you just have to get over that because no one would ever go into that field who didn't have some kind of, so you just sort of have to maybe put some of the aspects, all of them, not all of them, but mo a lot of them are, 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 are. Look, I, here's what I'm not saying. Not people you I, would have, have as neighbors. Not I, people you want as neighbors. And you got to get. I agree. I, I no, I agree. I agree. I think that, first of all, when you have that kind of power, when you achieve the power of life and death over millions of people, or you can affect their lives like that, you know, it, oh, it's just like when you hear that that you know, if kill, kill one man, you're a murderer, kill a million and you're a king. I mean, it's a different paradigm up there. It's a different paradigm. And I understand that there are extreme, extreme, you know, there could be extreme evil, extreme corruption, and there could be goodness. I mean, you're right. In Trump's case, Trump wanted to bring manufacturing back to the United States. He wanted the United States to become self-sufficient again, you know? Uh, he doesn't want the wars. That's one thing I think the left, Oh my God, why don't they give him credit? Jesus Christ, this guy's <laughs> bringing peace to the Middle East. And, he's, and, he's, and, and look, he's pulling us out of Afghanistan and Iraq and saying, what are we doing in these endless wars? That used to be, that used to be, you know, that used to be an honorable position for the left to hold. What do they want? More war? And well, I'll tell you, it looks like they might, they might get it this time. I don't know. But my, my point being, of course, is exactly what you're saying. There's a lot of, there's distasteful and there is also, there are also good, good aspects, but what I think could help to mitigate the negative aspects, if there was more accountability for corruption in this country, we just don't hold beyond a certain level of power. We just don't hold people accountable. Exactly. Well, it's all compromised. It's all captured. You know, there's a, there's, it's actually, again, a Marxist term that, so there's this concept economists came out with 49 years ago, and it was a, is a right, a friend of Milton Friedman. Now, just to orient me, Milton Friedman was my great friend. I know. Oh, he was? Oh, and that's. Was, but I think the left should revisit Milton Friedman, by the way. He was, he would define himself as a small L libertarian and a small R Republican. 
But, you know, Milton Friedman, the thing he was most proud of in his life, you look up his autobiography, it was his role in ending the draft. He was on the wow. commission and he, he's, he did some wonder and school choice is his thing. And school choice to me is how we save the Republic. And 72% of black people and 70% of Hispanics support school choice. I think that the racial issues, this is where I say the left is, is generally correct about the problems, generally incorrect about how to solve them. They're absolutely right to be, to be freaking out about the racial issue situation in this country. I'm just old and I was born in 62. I'm just old enough to remember the 60s and the civil rights movement and the high promise. And it is, some, and, but what happened after that, it's been 50 years and they black people have a right to say this has failed us the deal we made the bargain we made 50 55 years ago we we've been they have failed us in some way we look around things aren't better that bargain has to be restruck i'm 100 percent down with that program again i think that what some of what the there the the left is fighting for in that regard is a mistake I think some of it is absolutely true. And the, and the, at the end of, when you get to the end of all their demands on BLM, it's fixing the school system. And that's exactly, if we could have a proper school system, all, all kinds of things would wash out over the space of 10 years, 15 years, and all yes. kinds of problems would be fixed. But, and until we fix that system, I think we're kind of rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic. It, it really comes back to, to me fixing the education system, which I think you fix by giving parents choice. I never met an inner city mother who did not understand the way to break the cycle is get education for my children. That's what they want. And the current system is failing them. So, you know, there's, you know I, I have to, it's kind of a, a uh, smorgasbord where I pick and choose the things I agree with. Too many people approach their political beliefs now like they're football fans and I'm for the Redskins. I don't know what is that? Exactly. I'm for exactly. the Dallas Cowboys. It's come on, we gotta have a better discussion than that. You know, you know who, even though I got my face ripped off once for saying this, um, <clears throat> you have you ever read Lee Kuan Yu's book? Oh, uh, uh, oh, on the 13 bankers? I'm sorry. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, yeah, who who took who took Singapore yeah, from I'm a third world country. You should read his book. It's fascinating because he did. Some, first of all, this man was the ultimate nationalist. He loved his country, and he really wanted to lift his country up. I, I he didn't. I, he took. I don't even know if he he took any money for being uh, the head of state for so long. I, I can't remember, but he, this is a guy who there was zero corruption. And what he did was he looked around the world for best practices for virtually every government institution. Okay. He went to the, uh, he went to the Brits for administration uh, for education. I forget who he went to, but anyway, he went to, Whoever had the best system, the most successful system, he went to them. And that's that's how he did it. That's how he did it. You know, he also practiced, as I recall, he liberalized economically, but kept sort of political authoritarianism, a soft authoritarianism. And his approach was economic liberalization. And then at some point, the authoritarianism can fade and it became I was just over there. Uh, 
I was just over there in uh, when I fled the country last year after coming public. I went and stayed in Singapore a couple months. I love, and I've been there before a few times. It's a wonderful place. Well, and it's free now and well off. Well, you know, it's so interesting because um, one thing he did was he built public housing, and there was a there, the Muslims and the uh, you know the. The, the Muslims didn't want to live with the Christians and the, this and that and the other. And he was like, this is public housing, very nice housing. If you want to live here, your neighbor is going to have to be something other than who you, you know, who you are. So it's everybody's going to be in there together. And it was huge. It was a huge social rearrangement because everybody discovered, oh yeah, we really are the same. Yeah, we may have a different religion, but we all want the same things for our kids. We want a decent life, we want this and that. And it really changed the society. So he had just, and, and it's interesting. I mean, it really came out of a deep love for his country and his people. And I don't see that. Here, I just see like a basket of crabs, you know, everybody trying to compete with each other to, to uh, reach a certain level. And then at that level, it's like me, myself and my tribe. And, you know, let me go make, let me see how much I can suck out of this system or how much it's weird. I, and it's, yeah. well, it's almost like we need a, I don't know how to say it, like a spiritual transformation or something. I don't know. How do you? Well, big questions. I do think that giving parents choice would create an opportunity for teachers to become extraordinarily well paid and, yes. and get much better education. You know, what we have now, here's a way I've had, I've learned to get across to people on the left about the benefits of school choice. Right now, there is about 400, for every teacher in American public schools, there's about $450,000 of funding. Now, last wow. time I checked, yeah, they weren't making $450,000. They're making about $55,000 on average. And when you include benefits, it's about 70. So there's $450,000 going in for every teacher. There's 70 getting to the teachers. And how much does it cost to run a classroom? It's about 30 grand a year. So you can see where about a hundred grand goes. I mean, the physical, having a classroom, heating it. Where does the rest? It goes to a bunch of, yeah, that's the, that's the question. And you'll never get there as long as you have a top-down hierarchy, it's all getting, you know, half the money. People forget that behind their local elementary school that they love so much, there are district, county, state, and federal bureaucracies. Now, every time you try to talk about those bureaucracies and how they're sucking up half the money, they the people trot out the local elementary school teachers and say, you hate these teachers. No, no, I love the teachers. That's not the issue. Let's talk about this massive bureaucracy behind the scenes that's taking, that's really sucking out half of the, half or more of the funding. And well, you, just, well, you can't fix that until you give parents a choice. But anyway, it's more than that. It's, it's, uh, it's the corporatization of our media. Some of it is psychological that, that journalists, I saw when I thought Wall Street, I finally had it explained to me that there were five or six journalists who really set the, the, they were the hedge fund beat. They were the four or five major publications. They set the, they, the hedge fund beat was their beat. And then what they wrote set the guardrails and other journalists could come along. You got to basically stay within, you know, a couple yards of that. 
you can't really get outside the guardrails. If the truth turns out to be out here, you just can't say it. And that's corporate media. That's that's exactly right. And that's why you got you got the pushback that you got. We don't have much time left. I just want to say really quickly about Lee Kuan Yew one more thing. Sure. Two things he did. He paid the teachers excessively well, which attracted very high level people to the profession. And he paid all the government agency heads like CEOs. He paid them huge salaries to keep the corruption, you know, at bay. And it worked. It worked. I've been thinking of that. I happen to be in Washington, D.C. right now. And I've I've been thinking of that. You know, I so was a small L libertarian. I'm supposed to hate the government workers. And it's uh, I don't. And I've had experience over the years, maybe more experience than I uh, I've had my brushes with the authorities on many an occasion and maybe more in my future. But uh, I do have to say that the quality of people I meet turn out to be much higher. Not that I agree with them, but I thought that, you know, if you believe the comic strips, you think it's a bunch of dummies and it's not a bunch of dummies. They, you know, they make about on average twice what you make in the private sector. If you're a, if you're an executive assistant in the private sector and you make 40 grand on average in government, it's 80 when you include all the benefits and everything. But I have to say the people I meet, and I'm always as a CEO built number of companies, I'm kind of always judging people up when I meet them in those kind of professional contexts. And I generally think, gee, these, it's very rare that I don't meet a federal employee that whether we're adversarial or not, I can tell these are people who are sort of in the top five or 10% of their profession. If they were, an ex, if they're an executive- They care and they care. Yeah, they care. They, well, they care about what they care about, but in terms of quality of people, they're good, but very, yes. very tough, top five or 10%, but something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong with the system. I think, I think people have forgotten what made us work and how, when things did work, what, what made it work. I don't know. These, these are big problems, big questions to solve. I, I know if time's short, we it should. Uh, I should just tell, remind people, go to Deep Capture, and I laid out in one in one paper all the evidence about why this election was rigged. And I'm sorry for those people who don't want to hear, who wanted Biden to win. Uh, but this isn't about Biden or Trump. This is about the, the DNA of our system that's been compromised. And you know, good for you to understand that also 16 years ago, people at the grassroots level started telling me there's far more corruption in the voting system than anyone is acknowledging. There's, there's actually money, you know, getting, becoming a precinct. If you're down in some sleepy rural, I don't want to name the state, but Georgia or Louisiana uh, area, and you become an election official, you have all kinds of things offered to you. And there's all kinds of ways. If you're an administrator above, you can you can cheat the system. Exactly. Yeah. The Republicans do it, and the Democrats do it.